now we're on. <laughs> this is the way it always starts. I didn't do anything funny, but I feel like I should do something. Should I juggle? I'm not really sure how we should start this today. You should have wear a party hat. I should wear a party hat. Oh, that is true. No, I'm currently getting myself out of Italy. That's what I'm doing. Because the little chit chat that we had just put me in Italy. I want to be by the beach. Not yet drinking or maybe drinking. I don't know. It's uh, two o'clock in Basel. You can do what you want on a Friday. But <laughs> I love it. Renu, we've been throwing around some ideas of maybe having a quantum um, boot camp for C-suite and executives a week in Sicily. We've been talking about it. Everyone at my company is saying, do it, do it. I know. So maybe you and I can spitball on this idea. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, yes, yes, can, yes. Can I, can I feel really left out? Or? <laughs> no, you're invited. In fact, you'll be the MC for the week. Keep the party moving. I MC'd a couple of days ago for 300 people. It was pretty awesome, actually, in the logistics space. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, you know what the fun thing about it was? Is that I didn't know I was MCing until the event started. The guy was like, okay, you're on. I'm like, I am. Okay. <laughs> do that. <laughs> anyway, Mariana Bonanome, the head of education outreach at Sandbox AQ. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. How are you all doing? Renu? Mm -hmm. I'm really, it's Friday. We had a great week, but I'm glad it's Friday and I can wind down a little bit, a little bit. It's great. Yeah. I could not be better. I mean, I'm feeling left out of the Sicily plans, but you don't know I could crash. You just don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> What is it, like 20 hours away by flight? I could probably swim there on my back faster, but we'll see how it goes. Uh-huh. Okay. So, Mariana, before you got on the call, Renu and I always spend like five minutes on beforehand, and I want you to just refresh my memory a little bit about exactly what Sandbox AQ does, and, and, and more specifically as well, like what the head of education outreach does as well. I really want to understand this better. Yeah. Thank you. So... Sandbox AQ, we solve very challenging problems for enterprise using the power of quantum technologies and AI. And these two complement each other in many ways, and they come together in many of our verticals. So one of our focus um, at Sandbox is communications, communications and security. And so in terms of that, we are exploring ways to shore up existing security protocols around the world um, so that they can be quantum resistant. Um, and that involves in many cases doing a migration over, kind of assessing the existing security protocols, looking for weak, weak points, taking an inventory, and then really kind of re-architecting uh, the security for different service providers, financial services, healthcare services, um, so that they can be compliant, but at compliant at the same time, but still quantum resistant. Um, so there's that, but also I mentioned communications. So we have strategic investments in companies that are working on the technology needed in order to have secure communications via uh quantum theory, quantum mechanics. So that involves creating quantum repeaters for signal through fiber optic cables um, and quantum memory, which is needed for quantum communications. So this is going to enable the quantum internet around the world. Okay. 
what does quant? And that's just one piece of what we do, a tiny piece. So the security vertical is one. Then we have a vertical where we focus on simulation and optimization. And for that, we focus on drug discovery. Um, and so that's where a lot of our techniques come in, where we use AI, we use quantum inspired techniques. However, we do work on classical processors. So we are a quantum company, but we don't build quantum computers. We are quantum computing agnostic. We work with all the quantum computers, all the different instantiations of the qubits. So what we do right now does not rely on any quantum processors. Um, so we use tensor networks and these kinds of classical techniques, which greatly accelerate computation without having to rely on quantum. And in many cases, we have designs so that when when a fault tolerant quantum computer comes, we are ready to kind of do a switch over and that'll make our algorithms even faster. So this is for this whole pocket of our company is aimed at drug discovery. And we have a collaboration with UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco, and they are a Nobel Prize winning lab. And we are giving insights to them so that we can accelerate time to clinical trial for different therapeutics. And we're focusing on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's first. Um, and so that's our simulation and optimization vertical. And then we have another. <laughs> so if that wasn't enough, we also have a vertical that is focused on quantum sensing. Um, and so for that, we are focusing on using different Sen quantum sensing technology. So NV diamond centers, um, that's one. We also have OPM, so optically pumped magnetometry. Uh, so there are different ways of having quantum sensors um, for applications. And we use those to build di medical diagnostic devices. Again, we have a collaboration with UCSF they have a hospital as part of their university system and our hardware devices for medical diagnostics are already in clinical trial in their hospital. And we're focusing on magnetometry. So looking at the magnetic field of the heart to begin, and then we're going to move up to the brain and, and, you know, other applications. Um, and so these three verticals, the sensing, the sensing, the simulation and optimization for drug discovery, um, and the other vertical where we're looking at security and communications. Um, all three are really under, underpinned by our education foundation. Uh, and so that's where I plug in. So I am head of education outreach, and the premise of our company really is to pull in the brightest the best and the brightest from across multi-disciplines to come together to work on these hard problems that I outlined above. One more thing that I did forget about to tell you about, which is extremely exciting. In that quantum sensing vertical, we're also focusing on quantum navigation. So the same sensors that we use to build the medical diagnostic devices, we can put on air carriers and ground vehicles in order to do navigation, which is not jammable. It's satellite free and it works with the magnetic field of the earth. So for that, we're working with the US Air Force. You can imagine there is a lot of uh, government um, excitement around this type of technology. Um, so I wanted to make sure I snuck that in. But back to the education vertical. 
it underpins everything. And so I'm here and I'm sure you have questions. So I'm going to pause now because I don't want to keep just like rattling on and on. One thing I want to ask is, I mean, there are a lot of things. I've been in the quantum world for six months, seven months. So a lot of it resonates, though I don't get all of it. What does quantum resistant mean? It means it sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. What does that mean? Well, it depends on. So if you're trying to protect your data, it's really, really important. And it could be very, very scary. So when we say quantum resistant, the reason why we need to make our information and our protocol, security protocol calls quantum resistant is because when a powerful enough quantum computer comes along, it will be able to break a lot of the existing security protocols. So right now in the world, we use a method called RSA, Rivas, Shamir, and Adelman, and they created a technique which relies on the difficulty of factoring very, very large numbers. It's hard to do. And so because it's so hard to do, we use that to create a secret key, which allows us to communicate in a secure way. But when a large enough computer, quantum computer comes along, there are algorithms which allow that computer to to factor quickly, which means we're able to break all of a lot of the existing security protocols. And those quantum computers are on track. A lot of experts agree. We're looking at a five to seven year timeline for those computers to come, um, to be large enough, fault tolerant enough that we can do uh, a lot of quantum algorithms, which are very beneficial, but also maybe break a lot of cryptography. And what's happening now is that bad actors are, are not waiting for that to happen. They're downloading big pockets of data um, that will still be relevant in say what five to seven years, 10 years, whenever the timeline is for this quantum computer to exist. So a lot of that data will still be relevant, like data that is a matter of national security, maybe even financial data, healthcare data. They're downloading pockets of that data that's encrypted and they don't care. They can't read it now, it doesn't matter. So that they can decrypt it when the ability arises. This is called store now, decrypt later, SNDL attack. And it is happening now, which is why governments have started putting in policies to mandate that their government agencies, especially, start migrating now. Because when you migrate systems that are patchwork and pulled together over decades, now it's a real complicated endeavor to do this migration to new security protocols that remain compliant. So it's it's a real complicated situation. What are you migrating to or what are you helping clients migrate to if you said these fault-tolerant quantum computers don't exist yet, right? You say you're still on traditional processors, but what are they migrating to or are they just sort of standardizing all the data that they have? Because you said it's kind of patchworky. I'm just curious what that... It is. So so what they're migrating to is there are computer protocol, there are protocols that are quantum resistant. Um, as far as we can tell, we're working on it. So NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, that's in the US, um, they are really generally the leader for the other um, nations to kind of look towards. So France, UK and others have said whatever the US adopts, 
as their new protocols, we will we will follow NIST. So they all say government policy, follow NIST, follow NIST, follow NIST. Um, so NIST has out this kind of uh, this competition. It's called post quantum cryptography, and they put it out. They put out a call, and they had the brightest researchers across the world submit their protocols for consideration to be standard. And so what happens is that NIST puts these protocols through the paces. They release them out into the wild and they say hackers attack. So having everyone's eyes on these protocols allows the ones that are vulnerable to attack now, even without the quantum computer, break them. So they started with 20 candidates and they went through a round and they narrowed down and they went through another round and they narrowed down. And so now we're at the fourth round. And I believe there's about four left standing. The rest have been cracked from one way or another without a quantum computer even. And many of these protocols run on classical processors. So you can have a classical algorithm, which is quantum resistant, um, but it may just take one bright idea to crack it. And that's why it's so scary. There's no guarantee there. However, the protocols that rely on a quantum computer, those are unbreakable. Um, so when you talk about quantum resistant cryptography, you're talking about a gigantic bucket. You're talking about classical algorithms, as well as those requiring quantum hardware, quantum algorithms. Those two together make up the landscape of quantum resistant cryptography. Can we get a little bit of an explanation about what's the difference between a traditional processor and a quantum processor? Absolutely. We can get into that. So for a traditional processor, it has to do with how we store the information. Part of it is how we store the information. So classically, information is stored as strings, as, strings of zeros and ones. Um, and either you're in the state, you're... you're your digital bit, right? Um, which means binary, bitch, bit means binary digit. So your binary digit either exists in a state zero or one. There's no in between, there's no ambiguity. You're zero or you're one. But in a quantum paradigm, your quantum bit can exist, your qubit can exist in, in the state zero or one or really any combination any mathematical combination, linear combination of zero and one. So now all of a sudden you're representing many more values simultaneously. But here's the catch. The catch is it exists in this ambiguous state until you observe it, until you perform a measurement on it. And then it has to choose, okay, I am zero and I'll report that back or, okay, I am one, I'm gonna report that back. So until the end of the computation, now we're in this state where we're representing a lot more information at the same time. And this is just part of it. There's also this idea of quantum parallelism built in to the algorithms. But now we're, we're getting into like more complicated territory as well. You just said something really interesting, and I want to make sure that I understand it. You can represent a whole bunch of information using the same quantum state. Do I have this right? And is that because the, the numerical representation is in a state of flux constantly, so it can constantly be changing, ro almost rotating around different answers or different results, and it only has to decide when you ask it or when you observe it to say, 
I'm blue, I'm on, I'm off, whatever it is. So when it's not in that, when it's in its quantum state, it could represent, is it an infinite number of things? And does this why is this why it makes cryptography or security so much more resistant in a quantum state? Because you have no idea what you have until you look at it. And once you stop looking at it, it can change. Like it, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but for regular people to understand, am I even close here? So let's untangle these two ideas. So one idea is to use this quantum bit, this qubit for processing to perform a computation. But also remember that it's it's storing information. So what happens is if we want to use it for communication, what happens is we don't use a single bit or a single qubit. What we do is we create two at the same time. And we create them in a way, and this, this is a term called quantum entanglement, where the states are correlated and, and the, it was they are created in a correlated way at the time that they're born. And so if I keep one of those bits and I send one to Renu, Renu can know how I created the bit. So she understands that there's a correlation. And so... If someone like you decided, hey, I'm going to intercept this message. I want to read what they're talking about. And you go read the act of you reading this measurement collapses. And we know that there was a bad actor who intercepted because my state is correlated with the state that you're trying to read. So there's no way that we can communicate without knowing if a bad actor is interrupting us. This is completely secure. Um, and so this is really amazing. So the idea of entanglement really allows for the security and of the transfer of information. Now, when we talk about the bit in terms of a computation, what's really amazing is that the idea that we said where this bit can take on many states kind of simultaneously, this idea is called superposition. So for those of you who want to read a little bit more, you want to look up these two like key foundational terms if you want to get into quantum entanglement, which we described that we can use really well for communicate secure communication and superposition, which is the foundation that allows us to speed up our quantum processing. So I hope that kind of clarified a bit. Are you a physicist? <laughs> I am. I studied physics and as an undergraduate, I was a physics major. I then went on to study mathematics and I learned quantum computing as an undergraduate from, um, his name is Vladimir Safrinovich and he's still teaching this quantum computing course at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. Back when I learned it from him in 1999, it wasn't even an official class. He had just written a textbook, an intro to quantum computing, and he um, was for many years a member of Los Alamos National Labs. And so we begged him to teach us this material in the middle of a statistical mechanics course. And because we bugged him so much, he was so gracious. He taught us the material. Fast forward a few years, I was looking at problems in combinatorial group theory, um, this special field of mathematics, and I was trying to solve my problems. And we were writing algorithms to solve them. And one algorithm I looked at was about 100 years old. It's called Whitehead's algorithm. 
And it answered this great question, but it was super slow. So I looked at it and I said, hey, wait a minute. I, lo- I learned that if we change the paradigm, quantum computing device, we can speed this up. So if I can write an algorithm for that, I'll solve my problem really quickly in a different way that no one's thought of for a hundred years. And so my thesis advisor looked at me with very, very big saucer-like eyes and said, you need to find a physicist (laughs) to help you. And so I did. I went on the hunt for Dr. Mark Hillary, who is within the City University of New York system. I was doing my graduate work at the City University of New York, their grad center. And he was gracious enough to take me on and we shook hands on it. I said, I'll teach you group theory, the mathematics. And he's said, I'll I'll teach you more about the quantum physics. We shook hands and we've been best of friends ever since. He is my dear friend, advisor, mentor, guide, inspiration for all the research and just an amazing, humble human being. So, so yeah, my journey has been a long one. But it's not that long. And this is, this is the thing that I want to ask you, right? Like, how do you find the people to come and do this? There can't be enough people that understand this. If the textbook wasn't even written in 1999, it's only 2023. Like that's not that long ago, particularly in the scientific and the mathematical world. No. How do you find people that understand this? Where do you get them? That's amazing. So that's a big part of my my research and why my position exists. The reason why I'm at Sandbox. So what we found was in kind of looking at the studies and really there's not a lot of data out there. Let's just say um, looking at data from different countries of how the growth in the STEM fields and, you know, the breakdown by demographics, really that data is like basically non-existent or very, very paltry. Um, In the U.S., there's a little bit better data, but still not great. So I looked at this and there's a group um, by Professor Hughes and others. Hughes, I believe, is at a Fermilab and there are others at different universities who did a study to look at the kind of doing an investigation of the job descriptions in the field right now and looking at the skills and the requirements that come up in all of these job postings. <laughs> PhD in physics is in 95% of them. And, and engineering is in like 80% of them and, and programming is in 95, 90% of them. And so on, the paper is really revolutionary. I can send you the link. What I When I dug into it a little bit more, I said, okay, 95% of these companies hiring in the quantum space need physics PhDs. Okay, what about physics PhDs? What's going on there? So in the US over the past 50 years, physics, the number of physics PhDs has only grown by about 20%. And you would imagine that number was low to begin with as a benchmark. So the rate of growth of the base for the workforce, it's not growing at the pace that we need. And so, you know, right now we have a huge quantum skills gap. And so there, there is a national initiative in the US. I know the UK and I know Switzerland as well is putting in a lot of uh, money as well into trying to train this future quantum workforce. This is an urgent, urgent need. Um, so in the US, we have the National Quantum Initiative and they work to distribute funding and build awareness and work with institutions to create these these um, these programs and opportunities for students to be aware um, so that they can skill themselves and aware of the job opportunities. Yeah, it's really difficult. So that's why I'm at Sandbox. So at Sandbox and EDU, Sandbox EDU existed before Sandbox was 
sandbox spun out of Alphabet. So the origin of sandboxes, it was um, incubated within Alphabet X, the moonshot factory. And it's called, it was called Sergey, Sergey Brin, Sergey Sandbox. And Jack Hittery, our CEO, worked with Sergey on Sandbox. And he wrote a book on quantum computing. And he had, he really cultivated the original 20 or so engineers within Alphabet, within Google who became the pod of the first sandboxers. And they were focusing on quantum research um, and quantum inspired techniques. Um, and so they started a residency program where they pulled in students to educate them. So the students would work with the, these industry partners to do research, to get industry experience, and then go back out into the world and kind of spread the quantum love. Um, and so it was really important when Sandbox spun out of Alphabet and became its own entity. What was very unique is that we had EDU off the bat because we are at a, such a rapid pace that we need to constantly be upskilling and we need to kind of bring the world along with us. Yeah, I really want to address this, right? Because, and this is going to, this is going to sound potentially controversial, but you said, I'm just going to repeat some of the things you said and then just try to build on top of it, right? The number of physicists you said was already a very low number. The number of physicists and, and mathematicians together combined with people that understood computers and computer science, right? These numbers are really low and growing, not at a very fast pace. So there's an issue there that everyone's trying to resolve, right? And the stuff that comes out of Google X, yeah, should be, go part way to solve this problem. But it feels like an opportunity, as well, because it's not dominated by any particular, it, it's not big enough to be, even if it is dominated by a bunch of blue people, there aren't enough of them anyway. So isn't this like the perfect way to test? Like just bringing a whole bunch of different types of people in and tr not training them up because it's more obviously complex than that, but just getting everybody to start at the same time. It seems like a really cool time to experiment this, particularly in something with quantum, because the people that are going to come in are going to be super, super smart. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's why when I started, we, I started um, in May of last year, 2022, and I came in to the offsite. They invited me before I was even done teaching my last class. I was still a university professor. And I came to the table and we went around the table. And this was such a pivotal experience in my, in my history, in my life, where I, I just I had a chat with the people at the table next to me in Sandbox. So the woman next to me was Kimmy Moore. She it, she works with us, and I said, "Kimmy, what's your background?" She said, "Oh, I'm you know I'm a physicist," and and so she says, "I also." So she went on qualifications, top notch, and she said, "Oh, I also work on the Juno mission." I said, "You mean the mission to Jupiter?" And she said, "Yes, with NASA." Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. So that's one. And then on the other side of me, I said to a gentleman, very young, very amazing. And he said, I could not decide. So I studied them all. And I said, what do you mean by studying them all? So he triple majored in chemistry, physics, and mathematics. And so these are the young people that, that we have in Sandbox that are just so bright and so interdisciplinary. You know, people on our team, my residency program manager, she's a neuroscientist. Then we have folks that are residents for us that study biology and computer science. We have folks across the globe. We have folks who are in Spain who studied cryptology. 
Um, and we have, we, we really, we have folks everywhere. We have folks who came from the healthcare field. They did AI in the context of healthcare. And she, her name is Sparkle, I, which I love. And she does Sparkle, uh, Sparkle Russell. And she came on and she blew my mind and just the, the background that she had. And so I, you look at every person's background and they really came from different walks of life and different paths to join us at Sandbox. And I think, like you said, it's a huge opportunity to cu cultivate these relationships and to learn from each other. And that's what we're doing. We bring folks in, like you said, not really, we're not trained, not training. We're just giving them the opportunity to put their experts to use for a new use case and work in a collaborative environment, which is why I was so excited to connect to Renew. And we had that diversity. Renew, maybe you can talk a little bit about that diversity and quantum event that we co-hosted with um, Trinity College yes, Dublin. That was really nice because I've gone to Dublin for personal reasons. And then I landed in Trinity for the diversity in, in quantum event, which is sponsored by Sandbox and Trinity, of course. And then the first class, which is uh, this year, it was literally like half women, right? And that is, I mean, that made me really happy because as we just noted before, it's an industry for with a new opportunity. Well, it's brand new, right? That's really why I asked this question, right? Because you have an opportunity to experiment across the board about diversity because no one's doing it at scale, right? Sorry, I interrupted you. No, and I mean, I think that it was just really heartwarming to see their women, people from other countries. I mean, some of it is also obviously Ireland, right? And But then I saw how the concerted effort by a few organizations made a difference immediately. And at the tables I sat, there were people going to, actually someone went to Okinawa University to do continue with do her PhD. I really am hopeful for diversity in quantum because all of the conferences I've gone to have actually been quite diverse, however you define it. One thing, like I can never, I pro probably cannot build a quantum computer because I don't I'm not have the training. So isn't it necessary to have that base number of quantum physicists or whoever who can actually build it or upgrade it? I, I think about it quite a bit because there will be other things that I can do with quantum on different levels, but maybe I can't build. Is that is that okay not to have people can't build? That's a good question. And we're working on it. So we are with you. We're concerned about this. For us, we're building quantum hardware, again, for the medical diagnostic devices. If you look at our team in the lab in Palo Alto, our residents, we have a nice number of women in the quantum sensing in the lab, a nice number of women in the lab. It's amazing. So for us, we're able to control, we're able to control what we do as a company, but we're also mindful that we need to build the skill set for the future workforce. So because of that, we've decided to do a targeted effort, a, a collaboration with um, NYU Tandon School of Engineering. It's easy because it's my alma mater. So we decided to build out the process first with NYU because again, local, I hop on a train and go down and see them and, and hang out with them and talk to their faculty. So what we did was we talked to them about setting up 
and we actually went through with it, a minor degree program in quantum engineering, because we need to have the students trained who can work on the hardware. So they have, their labs are amazing. They have a class one clean room for nanofab. They have unbelievable engineering labs, maker spaces, um, AI robotics labs for medical devices and all of it. And they have a very nice diverse student population, including a lot of women. Now the women, they're up to 50%. Back when I was there, it was more like 17%. So they've made a huge effort to recruit more women. So we helped them recently. We were there for a couple of days and we did an educator workshop where we had representative from all the disciplines and computer science, applied physics, math, uh, engineer, computer and electrical engineering, all of them to come together to agree on a curriculum for a quantum engineering minor degree program. That's going to be voted on shortly. But what was really incredible was to see our residents who flew in to help with this. So our residents presented to the faculty Here's what's happening in industry. This is what I'm working on as a student resident at Sandbox. This is my responsibility in the lab and out of the lab. This is what's happening. And here are the skills. We asked them to list the skills that they use in their everyday lives. Um, what was most helpful. And then we also asked them to share with the faculty what are the classes that were least useful, which is also valuable information. And so having the residents guide the program to say yes to this, no to that. This was like transformational. Um, and NYU is really like, so they're approaching it from a really humble standpoint where they know that they have all the facilities and the resources they need. They just need some guidance to help put the pieces together in the appropriate way, being mindful that they have all these amazing women in the student body already. And because we're in New York, we have an amazing amount of diversity, um, ethnic, cultural, also a lot of scholarships. I went there on a full scholarship. I couldn't have afforded it if it wasn't that I had that scholarship. So they have a large portion of their students on scholarships. So this is an amazing opportunity. Again, it's very targeted. We're a small team. So we're trying to make the impact where we can. But by doing this, we're creating a model and a process that we're hoping can be replicated elsewhere. And that's what we're looking for. This is really like I've been so excited since I started the My Quantum journey. And uh, what keeps you not awake, but like what makes you happy to wake up in the quantum world? I'm happy to see the changes. I'm happy to see this. When I was a student, I was, and I'm sure you experienced this too, Renu, as a woman in my physics classes, I was the only woman, only, only woman. And now when I go to work, a large portion of the leadership in my company, they're women. And the people I work with are women. Like, this is incredible to me. I love it. Can I ask you this? How do you take, how do you take that experience, right? How do you take those statistics and transfer them to other places? Like, is there something to learn from this? Or do we need to just have new industries everywhere and that's the only way this is going to get fixed? That's a good question. I think we need to really be able to communicate what we're doing and communicate the importance and then also get this get stakeholder buy-in 
and commitment from the right people. And so I think having events like what we did at Trinity College, I really do feel that, you know, we we put out a call to action for people who joined us. And I really do believe that they will follow up. Like this is something that a lot of folks are passionate about. So I think just educating the community, sharing these resources, sharing the way we approach things um, and working with others to help them reimagine how they approach things. I think it's really important. And if I could add to Renew's question, you know, what makes you excited? What what keeps you keeps you going? What's really astounding to me, um, and this is something that you were hitting on earlier, Michael, is that something that I worked on and was so passionate about as a student 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is something that now within my lifetime is seeing the fruits. We're seeing the fruits. It's blossoming. Um, it's not something that I expected. As a mathematician, you know, the joke is if a mathematician passes away, you don't know until 100 years later when someone says, oh, wait a minute, what about that? <laughs> because what we do is like, so there's a huge delay in the application and the technology that comes from the math. So to see this happening in my lifetime is like, so mind blowing for me and so incredibly exciting to me. And to be able to help craft the programs that I wish that I had as a kid, I told you my story, right? I just said, I'm going to do this. And they said, good luck, go find the person. So I had to like do, do the Italian hustle and find my path. But I can now help set up those paths for others. So again, this is like super exciting for me. Do you feel like we're at a diversity tipping point, at least in this field? Do you know what I mean? Because I feel like if you can build this group and cohort of diverse people, right? Men, women, whatever kind of diversity you want to include in that, that the next generation people are just going to look up at them and go, okay, they started there, but now we're going to move all over here. Or am I just too much of an optimist to think that we're close to a tipping point on this? Because I think it's going to be generational. It's not just, we're not just going to wake up one day and companies going to change the way they behave, Right. But the generation itself is going to decide this thing looks nothing like us. Yes, I think that's really, yes, you're hitting it. And I do think we're at a tipping point. I think that having, as the students that we're including now in our efforts go on to have leadership positions, other students will look at them and say, well, if they could do it, I can do it. If she's my professor, I could be the professor, right? If he is my engineer, I could be, I could be that, and you know, I can have more engineer, you know, this, this is something that spreads. So absolutely. I, I think that we are at the tipping point. And if we make the right decisions, we will be able to have this model for future. How do leaders perceive this? Do they say, well, leaders of companies, leaders of organizations, do they say, is this something that we should keep an eye on? Or do they say, no, I'm going to jump right in? And I'm going to put my workforce, some part of my workforce on it, put my innovation budgets on it. What is your, what has your experience been? Well, so far my experience has been that folks are on board. And, but the thing is, is that what I'm finding that it may not be the top leadership necessarily, but there's someone in there who this who is passionate about this and generally those are the people that we connect with so we're hoping that 
by calling attention to the to these efforts that are already happening in many top companies, the leadership can see what's happening below and say, yes, that's amazing. Thank you. You're adding value. You know, we're going to we're going to continue to support this effort. Um, that's what I'm seeing right now. But again, you know, it's been just a few months of a wild ride for me. I know that my experience is going to evolve and I'm going to see more and learn more. I'm always worried that when it comes to innovation, that that taking that leap of faith, right? We can do it from the research angle, from even the mindset change. But for someone to say, yes, this is going to work, I'm going to put in money. That's the that's the thing that moves it. And that I sometimes feel that the world is a late adopter in general, especially when it comes to something like quantum, uh, which is because it's still... I remember when I was going to join this, I talked to a few quantum physicists that I know, and they all said, yeah, we've been talking about this for the past 15 years. It's not going to change. But then I started digging in and found research on the money that's flowing in. Right, And that made me hopeful. So I'm always hopeful that more and more leaders actually say, yes, we want to put in money because I think that will be the next the stepping stone that we need to make this actually commercialized. 100%. And what I f- found from my time in academia is you have to show, you know, a mini experiment or a pilot first, show the data, show it's working, and then you get the bigger dollars and you get the bigger fish to come on board and support it. So really what's happening is we just need to do and show. And once we have something to show, that will attract more support and it'll kind of be the snowball. I think that's a great way to end this call, right, Michael? I mean, I was just writing down the title. We just need to do and show. So yeah, that's exactly what I think. Mariana Bonanome, Head of Education Outreach at Sandbox AQ. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure it is to chat with you. And I'm sure we'll have many future conversations as our work evolves on all ends.